And we're live with Angular Air. My name is Kent C. Dodds, and I am your host, and happy to be here. So we are really excited to be talking with uh, Jopper about Falcor and JS and Angular 2. Um, and so I'll just go ahead and introduce everybody and say hi when I mention your name so people can see who is who. Um, so our guest is Jopper Hussain. Hey. And uh, he's our resident expert on Falcor JS. And uh, then we have our panelists, Amy Knight. Hello. And Patrick JS. Hey, guys. He's the new framework on the block. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Jeff Welpley. Hey, how's it going? Awesome. So uh, just to get us started really quick, um, before I forget anything, Olivia would be proud of me. Um, don't forget that you can ask questions live with the hashtag ngairquestion on Twitter. And at the end of the show, um, we'll fire those questions um, out, and uh, Jopper can sweat under the uh, live camera. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, it's hashtag ngairquestion, all one word, no dashes. Um, and I will keep tabs on that for the end of the show. And then our next show is a week from today, same time, same place, um, performance testing and everything in between with Gleb Bamatov. And we're really excited to have him on. He's a super awesome developer. Um, so that's cool. And then, as always, follow us on Twitter and Google+, um, at Angular Air, uh, to keep up with the latest uh, of what's going on with Angular Air. So uh, let's go ahead and get into our show. So, uh, Jopper, do you want to introduce yourself really quick? Yeah, my name's Jopper Hussain. I'm a technical lead for Netflix, and I work across the various Netflix DUIs. I'm also a member of the TC39, which is the JavaScript Standards Committee, and I'm working with the other members there from companies like Google, Mozilla, uh, to evolve the JavaScript language. Awesome. Um, so, Jopper, you're actually involved in a lot of different things that um, I think JavaScript developers everywhere um, should appreciate if, they, if they're unaware. Um, and so we're grateful for the, the work that you've done. Um, so let's, let's go ahead and get started talking about Falcor. Um, what is Falcor? Why does it have such a funny name? Um, just kidding. I think the name is cool. But uh, could you give us a, a brief uh, rundown of what Falcor is? Yeah, I think the best way to describe Falcor is that it allows you to take all of your data sources out there in the cloud and express them as a single JSON object. And then it creates the illusion that that JSON object out there in the cloud is entirely available on your client. And so what it makes you allows you to do is it allows you to access data as if it were an in-memory JSON object, even though that data may be coming from really anywhere. That was a good brief explanation. So there's a lot in there um, that's kind of uh, different ways to think about uh, about asynchronous programming and um, interacting with the, the data. So um, maybe this is too early, but I, I know that I'm really curious about some of the implementation details. Of, like, how does um, Falcor actually work uh, to accomplish this kind of an interface? Uh, yeah. Can you give us any anything details with regards to that? Yeah, um, now there's some aspects of the implementation that are really quite simple. Um, if you look at the way Falcor works, um, think of it like a web browser for browsing a JSON object. That's what it really looks like on the client side. Um, the, most pro the most important thing, I think, to understand about how Falcor works is that it's, it sort of tries to be M in your MVC. It's effectively a model. And we, what we want to do is make that model appear as though it's just a JSON object. And we're all familiar with simple JSON operations like get and set. I think the primary uh, difference between working with an in-memory JSON model and working with JSON indirectly through Falcor is that Falcor provides you with an asynchronous interface. Now, in other words, gets and sets and so on and so forth are asynchronous. And that gives Falcor the ability to say, take a request for data that it can't find in its local cache and go out to the network. And once it pulls that data back from the network, it puts it into its local cache, just like a web browser would, and then gives you that access to that data. So the implementation detail there, I mean, if you crack Falcor model, which we call the Falcor model, right, if you crack it open and look inside, it has a JSON object in memory, which is basically just a, a partial fragment of your JSON object out there in the cloud. And so in that sense, it's relatively simple, right? Um, now, of course, we add additional information to the JSON. 
um, you know, internal implementation tracking information. Um, one particular piece of information that I don't think has been widely disseminated yet is that Falcor's cache actually uses an LRU. And so at Netflix, we work with devices that are very, very memory constrained. So you know, the, the $15 DVD player that you bought in Chinatown may not have a lot of memory, but we want to make the same application scale across the next gen video you know, video game device as all the way down to that $15 DVD player. And the way we make it work is by allowing us to simply set a maximum size on the Falcor cache and then just sort of Falcor will bump out items um, from the cache after a certain after they haven't been used in a long time to ensure that we stay within that size. And that's totally transparent to you as a developer because you just ask for data and it asynchronously arrives. If it's in cache, that data will be pushed to you immediately. And if it's not, we'll make an asynchronous request, put it in the cache, and then push it to you. So again, the mental model of the web browser is very, very helpful there in understanding how that works. So one implementation detail is that internally we use an LRU, a least recently used uh, queue, and uh, basically we're just keep track of, keeping track of nodes inside of the cache. And once we breach our maximum size, we just kick that out. Now maximum size is optional, of course. Um, interest, other interesting implementation details. Uh, in order to make it feel like you know, it's just like you're accessing in-memory JSON, right? If you're accessing in-memory JSON, say, from two or three different views, the same JSON information, you don't have to think about it. I mean, it's just, it's cheap to access in-memory JSON objects. But that's not true when you're making asynchronous requests. If three different views are going to be requesting the same data, we truly want you to be able to not think about it. And so what Falcor has to do is it has to intercept requests concurrent requests for the same information and effectively make sure that only one request goes out to the server for that information. And a sequential request made while an outstanding request for some JSON information is made, if, if we get another request for the same information while we've made a request, we just sort of fold it into the existing request. So you can basically not think about it. You just request the data that you need, and Falcor makes sure that it gets into you efficiently um, by making sure that basically it optimizes your client-server inter uh, interactions. That's really so Oh, so sorry. if I didn't, oh, sorry, Ken, if I didn't understand, um, if I didn't know all the implementation details from how Falcor worked, it seems like from what you're saying that optimizes for kind of developer experience that you don't have to worry about, you know, exactly querying everything. You just kind of say what's needed within the UI, and then Falcor kind of handles how the data is is pulled from the database and kind of. Um, uh, pulled into memory. But my question with that would be uh, performance, because a lot of times uh, when you when you go with the other approach, the more traditional approach, you spend a lot of time heavily optimizing for like specific performance of like, okay, on this page I want this specific data and um, you know I don't want anything else. So can you tell us a little bit about the performance involved with this setup? Great question. So um, it's very common that in web applications, you want to open a view and you want to make one request across the network and pull down only the data that you require. Now, in order for Falcor to enable you to do this, what we do is, and this is one of the weaknesses of REST, which is that, well, I'll explain what Falcor does. It basically, it's just like an in-memory JSON object. So you request exactly the properties that you need. So one of the interesting things to note about Falcor is that you don't request, say, an object or an array. In fact, the only thing that you can pull out of a Falcor, uh, of Falcor's JSON object, so to speak, are just value types. The only thing you're allowed to request are strings, numbers, booleans. Um, those are the value types, and so you have to be very explicit about exactly what data you want. So you're telling Falcor, just like, of course, if you were pulling out of an in-memory JSON object in order to bind something to a form, you'd bind a string to that form. You'd be very specific about what you want. With Falcor, there's no separation of, oh, I'm going to go get my data, and then I'm going to put it into the form. Ideally, especially in the Angular world, where Angular 2 is going to allow you to bind directly to asynchronous data sources, we want you to just not think about the network. We want you to be able to bind your view directly to the cloud essentially. And because you're binding your view directly to a cloud, you're actually giving Falcor a tremendous amount of specificity about exactly what properties you want. So that solves one problem, which is it gives Falcor very specific information about what and only what it should retrieve from the cloud. Does that make sense? That's the first half of it. The second half of it is, on the server, how do we make sure that that gets executed efficiently, right? Um, and there's a couple of different answers, a couple of different approaches, of course, to implementing what the server looks like. Falcor effectively on the application server is doing what a lot of application servers that we're familiar with are doing. Um, they're building virtual, it's virtual, building a virtualized resource. So if you visit Amazon.com, you go to Amazon.com uh, and it says, hello, Jeff, right? It's not really that Amazon has a HTML file stored on the server with your name in it. 
what's going on is that it has a router in all likelihood, right, which is matching certain types of patterns of URL, and when it matches an incoming request for that URL, it actually sends a request off to the database, processes some code, and creates that HTML for you on the fly, serving you just that experience. Does that make sense? Now, that creates the illusion yep. that all of these resources, one for Jeff, one for me, one for Amy, are all sitting on this one web server, when in fact that's not true. The web server is actually completely stateless. It's just looking for certain patterns of requests and then turning that into code and lazily creating the data and sending it back. The way Falcor works is exactly the same way. One way of thinking about Falcor is it's effectively REST, but instead of for hypertext and for the World Wide Web, it's REST for pulling individual values out of a single JSON object. And so your path, instead of Falcor matching paths of URLs, what Falcor does is it puts all of your data at a single HTTP URL. So that's one important thing. That's how Falcor typically is implemented when using HTTP is the transport. You imagine that the entire JSON file, like could be gigabytes and gigabytes for Netflix, for example, because of all the data we have, is available at a single HTTP resource. Now, instead of downloading that entire HTTP resource, we use the query string to pass in specifically those properties that you have requested from the JSON. And then what Falcor does is respond with a subset of the JSON object containing just the properties that you've requested. Does that make sense is what the interface looks like on the server? Yeah. So because you've been very specific about Falcor by saying, look, I want these 15 properties and nothing else, what Falcor does is it sends it off to that one HTTP resource, that JSON HTTP resource, passes in uh, actually the paths to those individual properties in the query string. So you'll see model.json, um, question mark, path equals this, path equals this, path equals this. And when I say path, what I mean is it's literally a, a series of keys that you look up from the root to that value. So it's, if it's a customer name, it might say customer.name or customer.age or uh, orders.price. Those are, you know, JavaScript paths. We think of them as JavaScript paths. And so the fact we a Falcor router, which instead of matching URLs, because remember, there's only one URL. All of the data is stored at one URL. We're actually routing JavaScript paths. So instead of HTTP paths where it's slashes, it's like building a router that matches patterns in JavaScript paths, which are separated by dots. Does that make sense? And then at that point, the, the Falcor router behaves exactly the same way as an HTTP router. The primary, in other words, it, it, it goes off to the underlying data source, makes a request, and then creates just that subset of the JSON object that you've asked for with that path, and then sends that back to the server. Now, there are a couple of important differences, which is that when you're requesting a resource from HTTP, you can only make one resource per request. And that's one of the reasons why so HTTP wasn't really, isn't really optimized necessarily for the way web applications work. The key thing to understand about web applications is that web applications tend to work with large amounts of small resources, right? If you swipe on Netflix on the iPad, you might see 100 resources fly by in, a, in an instant. They're all tiny little video resources. Maybe the resource could be considered just the, the box shot, right? They have very fine-grained resources. But when we're surfing the web, we're usually dealing with two or three or four coarse-grained resources, uh, some images, some HTML, maybe a video. And HTTP was optimized for the latter, not the former. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a protocol with Falcor for pulling down web application data, for JSON data, Right, that allows you to efficiently request large volumes of small resources. And that's why when you make a request to Falcor, you don't just ask for one individual resource. You pass in all of the individual JavaScript paths that you're trying to pull out of the, the, the JSON object into a single HTTP request, and that goes over the wire. And that means that the Falcor router needs to actually potentially serve mini paths, like mini, mini small individual JavaScript paths in a single HTTP request. Does that make sense? Now, that presents us with a challenge. Now, that, that solves a problem, which is that it means that you can get a lot, as much or as little information as you want, in a single HTTP request, which is very important for uh, web applications, particularly those on mobile, right, where you don't want to be making round, multiple round-trip requests, where browsers only support so many outgoing HTTP requests, and you certainly want to be able to grab as much information as you can in a single request and not have to make sequential requests, because latency is a thing, right? Um, we, we, that's what we're concerned about for mobile. But that also presents a problem on the server, because we have all these little individual routes, and that may be matching 15 or 16 different JavaScript paths in one HTTP request. But now imagine each of these individual routes goes and makes its own request to the database. That might actually get somewhat, that, that, in other words, we end up making fine-grained requests to the back end, and that can lead to, you know, maybe perhaps more requests than might be necessary if you sort of looked holistically at all the paths coming in and kind of optimize that and made one outgoing request. Does that make sense? 
Yes, so, definitely. Go ahead. So as far as making multiple requests, just as far as like Falcor is concerned, how would that be different than, um, like, I've read very basic stuff about HTTP2 so far. How would that be different? Well, so a lot of things that Falcor is trying to do overlaps with HTTP2, but not everything. There's an important key difference between HTTP2 and Falcor. So just for those who aren't familiar, what HTTP2 does is it makes it much more efficient to send many, many HTTP requests over a single open connection. So the way that HTTP 1.0 worked was that every single individual HTTP request required a connection of its own. It sent one request, got one response, and then it finished. And then HTTP, HTTP 1.1 came along, and it said, well, OK, we can send multiple requests across a single connection. But the unfortunate thing said that they had to be pipelined in order. So if I send over a request across the connection, it would have to get a response for that. I could send multiple requests, that is. But I'd have to get the response for the first request back before the response for the second request, and before the response for the third request, and so on and so forth. And that doesn't really make sense, because what if the first request I made got served uh, much, much later than the last request I made, right? It's, it doesn't really make sense for throughput to structure it that way. HTTP2 solves that problem and provides a lot of optimizations to make it much cheaper to send multiple HTTP2 requests. It effectively multiplexes multi multiple HTTP requests over a single connection. Does that make sense? So there's two things. Now, it also makes it cheaper to send multiple HTTP requests because it actually does compression. So if you see the same repeated headers again and again for multiple uh, sequential HTTP requests, they kind of get gzipped, no, no, not literally gzipped, but basically optimized out using very similar technology. So that would seem to overlap with one of Falcor's goals, which is to allow you to ask for a lot of resources in a single request. But there's a very important difference between traditional HTTP REST and REST for JSON, which is what Falcor is. The World Wide Web is flat. So whenever you see any of these URLs in your browser with all these slashes, for example, you know what? Web clients don't care about your slashes. For all they see is basically an opaque string. And when we deal with structured data, right, the structure of our data is very important to us. Uh, and if we have a server that understands the structure of data, it turns out that we can make certain optimizations that are really important. Let me give you a simple example. So if I am trying to retrieve, say, the box shot for the first title in the first genre list of Netflix, so maybe like might be House of Cards, right, the box shot, I could make a URL for retrieving that information. It might look something like, oh, video or genre list slash zero slash zero slash box shot, right? We can make an HTTP request to request that information. But if we're doing things correctly with REST, what I should expect to see happen if I make that HTTP request is I get redirected. Because really, we always want one canonical location for resources in HTTP, right? Because we don't want the same resource stored in the browser cache more than once. And ideally, I'd like to store that box shot underneath the ID of that video. So I might expect to see be redirected to um, videos slash 2962 slash box shot. Does that make sense? It, it, I don't, I, that's, where, that's the one and only one place on the web where I want to expose the House of Cards box shot. But I might need to be able to access that information because World Wide Web is a graph. I might need to be able to access that information from a lot of different areas, in other words, a location in a video list before I know what that identifier is. And that's what HTTP redirects are. They're like the web's pointers. So if I attempt to retrieve a resource in one place, it'll redirect me over here. So that works. That's fine. But now let's say I turn around and I try and request genres slash zero slash zero slash rating. Maybe you clicked on a title and you want to see information about it. Well, once again, I get redirected to videos slash one, two, three, four slash rating. It's, it's as though there's a structure here. What I really want to say, what I really want HTTP to tell me is, look, you know what? Everything under genre list slash zero slash zero can be found at videos slash one, two, three, four. The thing is, because HTTP clients don't understand those slashes, because they have no notion of hierarchy, they can't do that. You can't redirect for one prefix of a URL to another prefix of a URL. That, and that, that causes real problems, because if you think about how HTTP redirects work, they go all the way back to the client, and then the client has to make a request all the way back to the server. And that's real latency that really hurts on a mobile co connection. Does that make sense, why I HTTP think, redirects are, are expensive? I, th I think what you're talking about is like traditional um, HTTP and uh, traditional REST. Uh, you know, most people uh, I found don't actually use traditional REST. Like, so you're absolutely right for if you do it by the letter of the law. Most people kind of do their own implementations where, like, for every single transaction, they'll do um, whatever optimized thing thing makes sense. You know what I mean? So, so mm -hmm. they sort of accomplish the same goal that you're talking about, but in sort of 
one-off way. Oh, yeah. and, and another way of saying, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that's that's actually just in support of uh, of your case that issue, or rest, traditional rest is kind of broken because we're always trying to overcome lots of these shortcomings um, and making our own implementations, um, which is not uh, very productive. Yeah, I mean, I, I would describe what you just said, Jeff, as basically using the web but like using the building endpoints that effectively function like a remote procedure call. That's different than REST, right? You're basically calling a procedure, you're hitting some URL somewhere, you're passing in a bunch of query string parameters that basically map to calling some procedure that's highly specialized for your view. And don't get me wrong, that totally solves the problem. Well, it totally solves the redirection problem. But it creates another problem, which is that now you need a new endpoint for every single one of your views, and you have highly specialized procedures. Every single time you need to add a new field to your view, you've got to go change the endpoint and make sure that that passes back a new field. So you end up creating all these new APIs, that are, and that's really a maintenance nightmare. What Falcor's trying to do is it's trying to solve the latency problems of REST but still allow you to use effectively the ideas of REST, like the fact that I can do idempotent operations, like get this particular value and know that it'll cause no side effects, which means that I can store it in a cache. That type of thing. We want to take the, the ideas in REST that, that make sense, that work, right? But we want to make sure to solve the latency problems, we want, and we want to optimize it for structured JSON data and not hypertext, which really isn't tremendously useful to modern web applications. So, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm picking on REST here, and I'm saying... You know, this redirect problem is a big problem, and anybody can say, hey, look, I can always get around it with an RPC, but I'm saying we can have our cake and we can eat it too. We can essentially solve the redirection problem by redirecting on the server. Now, some people might say that, well, wait a minute, isn't that server-side HTTP redirects? Well, yes, server-side HTTP redirects, that's, some, that's a way to solve this problem, right? If I go to, to um, you know, genreless slash zero slash zero slash box shot, you can just redirect me on the server-side, and then you can send back the resource. But that causes a problem. The problem is now that I might get that box shot or, or rate, let's say it's a rating value. I might, I'll actually have that rating value in my browser cache at genreless slash zero slash zero slash rating. And it turns out that House of Cards might also be a thriller. And so later on when I go to genreless five slash zero slash rating, I will end up getting the same rating from House of Cards, but now it'll be in my browser cache twice. And that's a real cache coherence problem because now if I set rating on one of these URLs and resources, the other location in my browser cache, the data is stale. We want to make sure, and that's why REST pushes us so hard to store, have one and only one canonical URL for every single one of our resources. It's because we get cache consistency that way. So Falcor's solution to this problem is to apply one constraint. It says, look, as long as you store all of the data that your web application needs at a single URL, it's safe to do server-side redirection effectively because we do a smarter kind of server-side redirection. Instead of just saying, okay, well, genreless zero, zero um, name is this, we say genreless zero, zero actually maps to videos one, two, three, and videos one, two, three name is house of cards. And so what happens on the cache, so because we, we're not using, you know, the slash, we basically, the slashes mean something to us, or dots, if you will. In Falcor, we understand the hierarchy, so we can simply redirect a whole branch to some other whole branch in the tree, which means that if I turn around, and I, the next time, uh, so what will happen is my cache will be populated with A, the information, the genre is 00, zero is actually videos123, and the videos123 name is actually House of Cards. And that's really important because the next time that I ask for genreless zero zero rating, instead of going right off to the server and asking for genreless zero zero rating, we can use that information in the cache, the knowledge that we've built up in the cache about the hierarchy, and optimize the path before we send it out. So I can look in the cache and say, you know what? I actually learned previously that genreless zero zero was House of Cards. So you know what I'm going to take, and it's actually videos one two three four. So I'm going to take that path that you just asked me for, genreless zero zero rating. And I'm going to turn it into videos list one two three four, or excuse me, videos one two three four rating. And I'm going to check in the cache, and sure enough, I don't find that because I haven't asked for it yet. But then that's the optimized path that I send off to the server. This is actually really key. It's, it's probably perhaps the most important ingredient that Falcor applies, this notion of path optimization, to allow you to not particularly care if you're accessing data out there on the network or locally. Because as soon as you start working with data that's out there on the network, you need to think about IDs, right? We need to think about IDs. And when you're, work, when you're accessing an in-memory JSON object, do you think about IDs? No. Right? I mean, you just got data, you pull it out, it's fast, it's cheap. 
right? There are IDs there, but they're the, the memory addresses of your pointers, and you don't even think about that. You just cross that. You know that it's cheap, so you don't think about it. But think about what happens when you start working with SQL data, or really any kind of remote data, data in MongoDB. If you don't pass back in the ID once you've received it again, it can be much more expensive to load data from the server to eventually find the entity you're looking for. Because an ID, really all it is, it's a shortcut through a graph. It's a fast shortcut through a graph. If you, if you say, put in uh, genreless zero, zero rating, here's what'll happen in the Netflix backend. First, we're gonna go to a service and we're gonna load your personalized genreless. And we might actually even load the entire list, the entire list set of personalized recommendations. Then we're gonna pull the first item out of the first list, learn that it's ID one, two, three, four, and then because Netflix is massively scaled out, we store personalized information in one data store and video information in another data store, we're gonna make a totally different request out to an entirely different service to pull that video data, and then finally give you the rating. But if you just gave us the video ID, we could avoid an entire sequential call to a different service and shortcut through the graph, find that video, and send you back the information. Normally, this is the programmer's burden, right? Some APIs, especially when you're doing RPC, right? Some APIs take pages, some APIs take IDs, and if you get back an ID, it's very incumbent on you to sort of make sure you store that ID and then make subsequent requests by passing in that ID. That's not how Falcor works. In Falcor, you just ask for data as if it was an in-memory JSON object. And internally, we learn about these, what we call references, right? And we optimize these paths to use IDs under the hood. Because anybody can just take paths you ask for and remote them over to a server. It'll work, but you'll get terrible performance. So it's path optimization on the client side. Basically, it's like a client-side redirect before sending off to the server is the, one of the, probably the most important key ingredient to how Falcor allows you to think about data that's remote exactly the same way you think about local data. Does that make sense? Yeah, wow. That was awesome. I'm going to record that and re-listen to that over and over. <laughs> oh, that's very interesting. It's really, really cool to um, get kind of an idea of, of how things work underneath the hood. Um, one thing that I'm interested in, uh, in uh, learning or talking about a little bit now uh, maybe it's a bit of a step back, but um, I'm really interested on the API, and then also this uh, conversation's a little bit about Angular 2 as well, but um, like from obviously the assumption is that all of your um, all of your UI that relates to data needs to be asynchronous, um, and so yeah, that, like there's that part of the API, but could you describe how the API works a little bit and, and sprinkle a little Angular 2 soft on that too? Yeah, well, so there's a, actually Falcor has a pretty flexible API in the sense there's a variety of different ways you can access your information. But at the same time, our API service is actually quite small, which I'm very, very proud of. There are really only three operations on a model, uh, get, set, and call. So, I mean, there's not, you're not going to find any fancy, um, you know, methods out there. It's really just your simple types of JavaScript operations that you can execute on JavaScript objects. Get accepts JavaScript paths. Right, something dot something dot something, and uh, it can accept as many paths as you want in a single GET request, and it emits a promise of the subset of JSON that contains all the subset of the JSON document out there on the server that contains just the values that you asked for. So that's what the API effectively looks like. So you call GET, you pass in a bunch of paths, you get back a promise that gives you back a JSON object containing just those values you requested from the uh, JSON object out there on the server. Does that make sense? Yeah. Set, yeah. pretty much the same thing, except instead of just paths, you have paths and values. So you can set a bunch of paths and values, and interestingly, what set will do is instead of having just return void, it'll return a promise of the JSON object with those values that you have set after the set operation has occurred on the server. The reason why we bother to do that, instead of in JavaScript where it's just sort of void, right? The reason why we bother to do that is that um, set operations may fail. Right? And so just because you've set something doesn't mean it's succeeded. And that's why we return the post-set value of all the paths that you've attempted to set on the server back to you so you can inspect them. Um, a, there might have been an error. B, it might have been coerced into a different value. Right? Think about Netflix. If you try and set the rating to 10, the server will say, thanks but no thanks, and maybe coerce it down to 5, for example. Right? And so that data will then make its way back onto the client and be updated in your local cache, incidentally, and then we'll give you the data. So the important thing to understand about REST and Falcor, and this is one of the big benefits of, of using what's called idempotent operations, is that you can, they're transparent to a cache. In other words, if I do a get operation, the idea behind an idempotent operation, let me, let's take a step back and explain idempotent operation. There are certain types, because when people see get, right, they think 
How's that different than any other procedure call, right? I mean, we talked about RPCs before, right? I can write any fancy procedure that does anything. Well, get comes with certain assumptions. Get is actually a very important uh, specific subcategory of operation that you can perform because the, the guarantee that you have to ensure is that repeating the same get operation has no additional side effects on the server. And if repeating the same get operation has no side effects on the server, it, it means that there's a very important invariant that we can rely on. Namely, I don't have to send a get operation to the server. I can just serve it out of a cache, right? That's not something that you can do with any arbitrary procedure, right? I, I can, it's very hard to even cache the output of a procedure or avoid making a procedure call to the server based on something in a cache because the whole point of a procedure is that it's a black box. I have no idea what it's going to do. So get is a white box operation. I know exactly what get is going to do. It's going to give me the value of this path. And if I happen to already have that value in a cache, well, it turns out I don't need to send that get off to the server. So that's why it's so important why get is such an interesting, specific type of operation that Falcor has. And the same thing can apply to set. So with set, although if you, re if you repeat the same set operation, right, as long as you are the only one who owns the data, you shouldn't see any additional side effects on the server. And you should be able to at least make a pretty darn educated guess as to what will happen when you run a set operation on the server. Now, keep in mind what set means in this context is we just set this one slot on the JSON object out there on the server to this value. It shouldn't change anything else. So one property should be set to one value. So don't think of it like a JavaScript property where you could have a setter that does any crazy thing, right? Think of it as an actual setting that value. And because we can predict what's going to happen when we set a value, well, you know what? We can make that change on the cache locally before we send it off to the server. So changes that you make with set actually instantly appear um, locally, and that's exactly what, if you think about it, that's exactly what we want in Netflix for a rating, right? If when you click the star, we don't want to pop up a spinner and then wait for the network request where we call a set rating procedure to come back. We want to immediately update the star, then send the request off to the server, and should the server, for whatever reason, not meet our expectation, which is, and our expectation is always that that one particular value is set to that uh, one particular property is set to that one particular value, then the real value will eventually come back from the server and we're eventually consistent and we'll update the local cache and then that'll end up rep like getting updated on screen or represent reality. And so get and set are very powerful operations because we can rely on invariants. They allow us to do more because they can do less. And that's an interesting dynamic that we see in computer science sometimes. It's not sometimes always about seeking the most powerful API. Because if you have an API that can do anything, it's very difficult to predict what it's going to do, and you can't rely on many invariants. The goal here is to find, actually, just the APIs that are just powerful enough for the job so that you can rely on expected behavior. And so that's get and set. And then finally, we have call, which is the most uh, complicated operation in Falcor. So when I say Falcor is REST for JSON, REST is great, but there are some operations which are not identical, right? Which you really can't do with just a get or a set. And we, we see this in HTTP with post, for example, right? Adding to the end of a list or to the beginning of a list, certainly, can't be done with a set because you're actually changing many, many individual values when you say shift on the front of a list. So that's not really a set operation. And you, it's hard to know where to move all those values. Even if you tried to do it with a set, you'd have to first make a call to the server, get the status of the list now, then create a bunch of set operations and the list might have changed and in between. The whole point is some operations need to be atomic or transactional. You want to do a whole series of operations all at once. And this really is basically exactly what RPC, what I said about RPC before. And now you might rightly push back and say, hey, didn't you just say RPC was bad and it had all these problems? Well, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get the power of RPC without throwing out all of the benefits of REST. So when you, let's say you're doing REST, you're doing traditional REST, like 90% of the time in, uh, in a web browser, but then every now and then you have this specific case where you, need, you really need to just treat an endpoint like a procedure call because you need to go and say, change 100 different resources, and you need to do it efficiently. There's an equivalence here with SQL, if anybody out there has got any database experience, with stored procedures, which are stored procedures versus SQL, right? Um, you might want to efficiently update a lot of resources. Well, the problem is, if I have a cache in my web browser, and then I call this RPC, which, who knows, might change a 1,000 different resources, my web browser cache might be completely out of date. I have no idea if that procedure, that black box, changed 100 things. So how do we resolve this? How do we allow you to have RPC, which is transactionality, and calling functions, right, and procedures that do a lot of work, but also 
respect the fact that most web applications are massively reading mostly static resources, right? And, and they should be allowed to cache those resources. The way that Falcor makes these two things compatible is that we place procedures just like JavaScript objects. We are allowed to have functions inside of the JSON object. So you can put a function anywhere inside of this JavaScript JSON ob this JavaScript object out there on the server, and then you can call it remotely with Falcor by just providing the path to the function and then passing in the arguments. So it's just like a stored procedure or whatever else. So that sends the request off to the server. It never gets evaluated on cache. It goes around the cache because I can't serve a procedure out of a cache, right? And then it executes the logic on the server side. So how do we resolve this problem, though, about I might have a cache in Falcor of all these values that might have changed after this procedure? Well, it's simple. The procedure sends back a list of all of the values that it may have changed. And then Falcor kicks those values out of the local cache. Does that make sense? So that allows us to have transactionality and a cache. Uh, that's very cool. Wow. You answered like eight of my questions that I had. <laughs> and actually, I can't believe it, but we're already coming close down to our time. Wow. It's been too fun, Joffer. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to be quiet now and let the panelists ask some of their questions that they have. Patrick, you've been extremely quiet this uh, episode. You, you have like a million questions here. Yeah, yeah. So it's more of like um, just um, talking more about Falcor. So essentially, like you, you mentioned how like Falcor is very asynchronous um, interface for uh, JSON, right? Like, right. So you can kind of think of it as like uh, as a simple way of thinking about it. It's just like um, like local storage, but the the idea is that like it's an asynchronous local storage, but mm -hmm. um, the way we use local storage is just like this dumb box. And essentially, what we do is we create, you know, a JSON graph essentially, but then we just save it there. So essentially, would you kind of agree like Docker is kind of like a, a better version of what that is trying to do? Yeah, I think that's one way of thinking about it. I mean, local storage suffers from the same problem REST does, which is that it's it's flat, right? It's a bunch of keys and values, whereas um, Falcor is hierarchical. It, it's a hierarchical JSON store, right? Um, and so in that sense, it's different than a lot of these things like CouchDB, MongoDB, um, where it's just sort of a key value store, and you slam in some JSON, and you can take out the JSON at that one key, whereas in here, you can sort of walk down the hierarchy and build a path of keys that you want to retrieve. So the API is more is hierarchical. Yeah, and um, so basically, you you mentioned how like you do like Falcor does like path optimizations, and um, what do you think about uh, other things just like that does the similar optimizations like uh, JSON API that actually sends mm -hmm. the ID up in order for them to optimize that? Um, can you explain more like about that and how they compare? Yeah, JSON API does a very similar optimization to that. Um, I think that JSON API though kind of relies on the notions of REST. And so in that sense, it suffers from some of the same latency issues we talked about earlier, right? Um, JSON API is a very, very nice, elegant way of mapping REST APIs into a JSON document. But that doesn't really solve the, um, the problem of latency. Um, so let me put it this way. You can, uh, if I make a request, right, I can get, um, uh, I can get IDs back, and I can sort of map how various REST request, make it into a JSON API. Um, but that doesn't really fix the issue of, say, wanting to request um, 15 different, uh, let, let's say I want to re request the name of uh, the first 20 items in the first 15 lists of a, of a, um, of your Netflix genre personalized lists, right? Throughout that process, um, what Falcor will actually do is it will come, it will sort of get up to like genre list zero zero, and it'll redirect you to video list one two three. But that redirect happens, as I said, on the server side, right? Whereas JSON API will handle redirects that happen on the, uh, the like the, the the way REST traditionally does redirects, which is a we'd have to issue a bunch of HTTP requests, and even if we assume that HTTP two makes that cheaper, it doesn't solve the problem of redirects flying all the way back to the client and then having to go all the way back to the server again. The key um, constraint that Falcor puts in place is that by putting, by forcing you to put all of your data at a single endpoint, it means that we know that we can deterministically redirect you on the server. Whereas with JSON API, you could be integrating a million different REST APIs into a single JSON document. But that necessarily means that if 
you get redirected, that, lo that, the, that data might be located on an entirely different server, which means the redirect needs to come all the way back to the client and then get sent to an entirely different server. And so it doesn't really save you from latency problems, even with HTTP2 and JSON API. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's awesome. Um, so there, there was also, a, uh, someone tweeted this at a, at a meetup, but essentially um, there was a slide that said that Netflix actually deleted like 90% of their, their REST code uh, when switching to, to Falcor. Um, is that because like it's optimizing pretty much everything you're, you're saying? Like, can you uh, talk more about that? Well, I mean, we had a, a service layer um, inside of our, our Falcor client application, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger because we would continue to add more and more of these RPC calls. So we started out with a REST-like API, and then we moved to a very RPC-like API for the same reason everybody else does. The latency problems, um, you know, we can't afford to open 15 connections to retrieve 15 individual video, small video JSONs, right, when you open your Netflix. That, that, that's just crazy. And so then we started moving to very specialized endpoints for our various, you know, various views, right? This view had this specific RPC call, this one endpoint where it would get only the data for it, but then if it needed to add a new field, we'd have to go make that change on the server. And every new view, as the, as the application expanded, required more and more of this code. And for the most part, with Falcor, we were able to just wipe the vast majority of that away. We still have code, of course, on the server for the routes, right? But because it's so much more composable, because from one view I can ask for some subset of properties, and then another view I can ask for another overlapping subset of those properties, and they, they reuse the code to, to materialize the, 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 the common union of the, their two sets of properties they're requesting, we don't have to keep adding new endpoints for every single new view that comes along. So yes, we were able to reduce the amount of code doing any kind of, both on the client side, accessing the server, and uh, because now, of course, views talk to Falcor directly for the most part, right? So they don't need to go through a service layer that has to be maintained on the client, a series of services, uh, data access objects, and that type of thing. So that's one piece of code removed, and also highly specialized endpoints on the server have been replaced with much more general purpose and reusable um, routes for individual properties that might be requested from any number of views. Uh, that's fantastic. I want to get my hands on Falcor. Um, I, I wish we had a little bit more time, but uh, we have several questions on Twitter. Um, Lee, that, uh, can, can before you go, go to Twitter, just on that one point, uh, really quick, um, uh, Jafar, would you tell us a little bit about um, when Falcor is going to be released so that people can actually try it out? Yes, I think I can say here um, that I think we plan to release as early as next week. Um, so we're very, very much, uh, now we're actually finalizing details like websites, documentation, um, and uh, building some examples. Uh, but I think at this moment, either this week or at the absolute latest next week, we're, we're going to be releasing. Breaking uh, news on... Uh, uh, <laughs> you heard it here first. There. <laughs> right. Now, I want to emphasize something. That's just a developer preview, right? It's still a very early release for us. Um, and so, you know, we're, we don't, don't use Stockhorn production tomorrow. Um, you know, this is definitely a developer preview, and we're trying to get people's uh, feedback, and I'm sure there's going to be bugs. It's a pretty, you know, as I said, it's a preview release. So bear that in mind. Cool. Yeah, I think everybody can blame me for the holdup of Falcor because I bought falcorjs.com, and so we just didn't <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, let's go ahead and jump into uh, some of these questions. Um, so the first question that we've got here is uh, from Dave Baskin, and he's asking, does Falcor work with non-static data, like data, data that changes often? And actually, this relates well with uh, Rob Wormald's question. Does Falcor have the ability to listen to update events from the server, like uh, Socket.io push and change sets or stuff like that? I think those are related. Yep, so Falcor out of the box, one thing which is important to understand is we're not really trying to be Meteor. For those of you out there who know Meteor, Meteor does bi-directional push communication. It's great for when you've got a lot of data changing on the server and you're trying to synchronize it across a lot of different data sources. What Falcor is really good for are web applications that are massively read, that are mostly read, with occasional writes, and where you can live with some delay between um, with, with some period of time where data is stale on an individual client. Now that said, there's absolutely nothing, no reason why you can't build something which simply pushes notifications to Falcor, right? Fal the way Falcor communicates, right now out of the box, it uses a, every, the Falcor model uses a data source, what we call a data source interface, to communicate with the network. And that means you can implement your own data source. Right now the one that comes out of the box will be over HTTP, but I'm sure we'll see one.
No, I think we anybody from them. Uh, Jeffrey, you, you cut out there for a second, right, when you were talking about the different data sources. Nation. Right, so out of the box we have HTTP, but I'm sure that soon we'll see a WebSocket data source and people will implement their own data sources over various pipes, various different types of protocols. Um, and there's nothing in the world stopping you from um, having felt like sending a message to a client and then interpreting that message and then kicking, like basically clearing the Falcor cache or sending data directly into the Falcor cache, which we allow. We allow you to get direct access to the cache to set data into it without then having to go to the network. And so although out of the box Falcor isn't bidirectional, it's very easy to set that up if your underlying pipe supports push notifications. And we're actually looking at doing exactly that right now in the mobile space where we have push notifications or in the browser space where we may have WebSockets. Great. Cool, that's exciting. Um, so another question, uh, this one from Jason Lunsford. He asks, Jeff, uh, Jeffrey, where do uh, you see Falcor technology being used outside of Netflix? Well, so we've had quite a bit of interest. Um, we've given early access to a lot of developers. Um, I mean, to be honest, most of the web applications I have worked on in my career would probably have benefited from Falcor. Um, lots of I've done a lot of line at, a line of business applications, which are browsing through large volumes of information, and it's not absolutely necessary that they, it's very okay that they be eventually consistent. It's not absolutely necessary that changes need to be propagated to everybody who happens to be on there at the same time. If your data is largely sharded in the sense that individual users are you know have their own data. Right, and they're not messing with data from anybody else. It's just very, it's, Falcor is a very natural fit for that, right, where you don't have to worry about propagating changes to multiple clients. Um, really, I mean, anywhere where, it, now, I guess I would start, I would, it's easier for me to talk about cases where I don't think Falcor is useful. I don't think Falcor is useful where you're basically, you've got a stream of data that's constantly changing. Because in those areas, caches just aren't useful, right? Um, Falcor's main value proposition is the fact that it, it has a cache. Uh, and that cache allows you to avoid unnecessary network uh, calls, and it'll optimize your your requests. Um, so if you're in an application that's highly dynamic, that the data is changing all the time, and you're pushing lots of data back and forth as that data changes, right? That's more of an event stream type of application. I wouldn't build a stock ticker with Netflix. Let me put it that way. Or excuse me, a stock ticker with Falcor. Pardon me. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't build one with Netflix either. <laughs> so um, actually, that I. Just uh, to touch on that, I can totally see a use case where I work, uh, where like we we don't want to keep data cached for very long because other people can change it. But um, that's not the only use case I see from Falcor. It's also the optimizing those requests. I think this that's a huge benefit. Not having to create a, a specific endpoint per page. Um, yeah, I think that's that's awesome. So. Yeah, it's important to note we have a TTL. So you have actually a tremendous amount of fine-grained control over Falcor's cache. Uh, one, you can set uh, time to you can set, set expi expiration. The other is you can set up push notifications and you can explicitly expire from the cache. So really, we're we're even more flexible than a web browser in that sense. I mean, we give you direct access to be able to kick stuff out of the cache. That's great. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can totally see myself using this. Um, uh, okay. So next question, uh, another from Dave Baskin. What is actually no? You answered this about uh, the release. Maybe a week, hopefully. Um, so. Yeah, a week at the earliest, two weeks at the latest. I'd say at this point, we're definitely on the on the runway now. Great. And then that that sort of answers Erwin Dutton's question about a website for documentation about Falcor. That'll be released when Falcor's developer preview is released, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, the website's really coming together right now. We've got some uh, great folks working on it, and a lot of, a lot of people have helped out. And uh, it's going to have a lot of documentation. Not all the documentation is going to be 100% there. Uh, it's, pre it's a developer preview, but I, I think people won't be disappointed by the amount of documentation we have. Cool. Um, so another, uh, the last uh, Twitter qu question is, um, this is from Rob Wormald, and he's the author of um, SalesJS, I think, if I'm mm -hmm. not mistaken. So he says, so in theory, we should be able to build server-side adapters for Falcor um, for anything like sales with Socket.io and Forex. I'm not sure what format Forex is, but um, so like he, he's talking about building adapters for Falcor uh, server-side. Oh, for example. <laughs> oh, for example. Yeah, it's Twitter character limit. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, the the absolutely. So right now, what we're focused on is 
we are focused on, so if you look at what Netflix is, what its back end looks like, is a whole series of what we call microservices. Large numbers of services that are composed together that communicate. It's effectively a service-oriented architecture. And the router concept that I talked about earlier is actually ideal for that. Um, whereas a lot of people are interested in a different use case, though, which is that they have a single SQL database, and they're trying to make sure that every request to the server turns into a single SQL statement to that database to retrieve all that data. And out of the box, Falcor isn't going to have very good support there yet. There's definitely things you can do where you take all the incoming paths to Falcor, and then you build some translation layer, but effectively a, a query optimizer that builds a SQL statement that goes to your MySQL or PostgreSQL. We're thinking about the right way to do that right now, but frankly, it's a harder problem um, than going against a REST backend or service-oriented architecture where the router model actually works very, very well. Um, so that's one thing, that's one caveat I want people to bear in mind. If that's your use case, um, out of the box, I don't feel the router is going to provide you with the most efficient way to do that because it tends to be very fine-grained, and it's difficult to sort of bundle that into a more efficient SQL query. Um, but, you know, against if you have a service-oriented architecture or you have uh, a REST backend, like a, a series of REST services, I think you'll find the router is a very good fit. Cool. I think one, one challenge that you might have um, as you're releasing this is, and people want to adopt it is it might be easy to adopt it for a Greenfield project, but one thing that you're going to have to, like, in helping people adopt this is, is figure out how to migrate from their existing RESTful or semi-RESTful uh, service layers to yep. something more like Falcor. So, um, cool. And actually, Patrick, you had one other question I thought. Um, did you want to throw that out there real quick? Yeah, will we start seeing more open source projects from Netflix, like at the scale? Well, so, I mean, I want to point out that Netflix OSS already has a lot of open source projects. So we have some very, very popular open source projects. I think this is probably, I don't think I'm wrong here when I say it's our first big open source project on the front end, right? But we have on the back end, um, you know, we have a lot of software out there for uh, running services in Amazon. Um, we have Rx Java, which is a very, very popular open source project for reactive programming in Java. So we've got tons and tons of OSS projects, but Falcor is our first real attempt, I think, to do something substantial in terms of uh, on the front end. Cool. Uh, so actually, there's another question. I got this one direct message to me, which is okay, but uh, don't do that. <laughs> Use the ng error question hashtag. But uh, the question I think is really interesting, and I was curious about it. So does Falcor's get operation support offline? Uh, so I think more generally, does Falcor support offline if there's no network? Is there some local storage going on, or uh, how, what's that story? Yeah, so we're very, we're very concentrated on the offline story. Here's what's great about get and set. Offline is easy. Right. Um, effectively, as I said earlier, you can basically, uh, so what the way the model works is it has a data source, which it uses to communicate with the server. But you can simply say to the model, you know what, throw away your data source, ignore the data source, and then every operation you do to it will be performed only on the local cache. Now, at any time, you can say to Falcor, you know what, give me the entire cache, and it'll return it to you as a JSON object, and then you can stick it in local storage. Alternately, you can take it out of the model and then connect the model back up to the data source and call one big set and migrate all those changes back in one block out to the server. Where we don't have a good story right now is around call, because call doesn't modify the cache. And so um, certain types of activities that you would normally use a procedure for were, are, are not really easy to do offline, and we're sort of thinking about the right way to handle that. Um, but if you're doing things like filling out form, form fields, for example, basically get and set operations, I, I think you'll find the offline story very satisfactory. Wow, that's actually remarkably simple. Refreshing, refreshingly simple. Very cool. Um, cool. Well, so that's that's it for our uh, Q&A from Twitter. Um, so I, I do think we have maybe a minute or two for other questions from the panelists. If there was anything else that um, you were particularly interested in asking. Well, I was just uh, interested in. <clears throat> you mentioned. Um, comparison of, of some other things before, but, uh, you know, one thing that is similar to um, is Facebook's Relay uh, mm -hmm. and the GraphQL stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how Falcor compares to that? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that GraphQL and Falcor are tackling pretty much the same problem. I think that's fair to say. Um, but it's interesting that we've come to pretty different approaches in how we tackle that problem. 
Um, what GraphQL does, I think the most important distinction to understand is that GraphQL is a query language and Falcor is not. Right? When you pass in a path that says, give me the name of the first item in the first list of the genre, so genres, uh, square bracket zero, square bracket zero dot name, that's not a query language. Right? We do support things like ranges. So you can say genres zero to 10, zero name, and get the, the name of the first item in the first 10 genre list. But we don't support zero to star. And when you're asking Falcor for resources, what you're really doing is you're very explicitly asking it for a finite series of values. You're not creating an open-ended query where it's unpredictable exactly what resources will be returned. And in a SQL statement, of course, you have select star, right? Uh, GraphQL is set-based. It's set operations. Give me all of these where this is true, uh, ordered by this, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and that has some positives and it has some negatives. Um, I think it's fair to say that the GraphQL's query language is more powerful than Falcor's. The question you want to ask yourself is, do I need that power? Um, I guess from our perspective, we felt like on Netflix and on many applications, it's actually very predictable what types of queries are going to go from client to server. It's not that you tend to see vastly different dynamic server requests. It's that you tend to see the same types of shapes of server requests again and again. With GraphQL, what you're doing is you've got this powerful set language, and that gives you a lot of power. It absolutely does. It gives you more power than Falcor does because it's a query language. The question you want to ask yourself is, do I need that power? And what does that power cost me? So I, I want to be very clear about this. I, I'm a big fan of GraphQL. I think it's actually a fantastic piece of technology. Um, it's, it's really, I, I really respect the folks behind it over there at, uh, at Facebook. I think along with React, Facebook's doing some fantastic work. I think what we did when we took a look at Netflix, we consciously decided against the query language though because we felt that the right thing was to use REST for that big hop from the client to the server because that's where you get the most benefit from a cache, right? And having very specific and predictable operations like get and set actually do expose usually more opportunities to leverage a cache. Now, the way this works is, let me give you an example. I guess the downside of GraphQL, and you have a powerful query language, right? But the downside of it is that you have to interpret that query language on the server. Most of us are familiar with building routers, right? It's relatively straightforward to build a pattern that matches a URL. It's substantial. I think it's fair to say, and I think they would concede, it's substantially less straightforward to build a query uh, parser and/or optimizer, right? So what you'll get with GraphQL is you will get a very well standardized um, block of of query data, and that's really incumbent on you to try and map all of that different those diff that query into one or more different data requests to your backend, and that's a substantially challenging problem. And the question again you want to ask yourself is, and I alluded to this earlier in the talk is. Is, is more power better? Well, it's not if you don't need it, because it costs you something. And it's my contention that many of the web applications out there, not all, some will definitely need this type of power. Um, really, what they need is explicit queries, very, very explicit, um, predictable queries from a client to the server that can be accomplished with paths just fine. And then, of course, it's much easier to build that on the server side. So I think that's the trade-off, really, with GraphQL. You got to understand GraphQL is built for Facebook-scale problems, where they have something like 15,000 types on their feed, which is an incredibly hard problem, and, and it's, it's real, I think it's, GraphQL is a great piece of engineering to solve that problem. Netflix has 20 types, right? It's, it's very manageable for us um, and the type of application that we have, which is mostly paging through static resources, occasionally changing properties. It's very manageable for us to think about that as a JSON object out there in the cloud and pulling properties out of it. If it's not manageable for your application, right, and you need a powerful query language, um, you should take a hard look at GraphQL. Yeah, right. so, yeah, so um, it's interesting that you mentioned, like, the complexity of GraphQL and the, the backend. Uh, I recently, like, messaged my friend about this, and because he heard about GraphQL, and he's really, like, hyped um, with all that, and um, they decided that their startup is going to convert um, their endpoints to GraphQL. Um, and then, like, uh, I messaged him a few days later after he said he was doing that, and he said, like, he kind of hated every moment, uh, minute of it because... Um, Constructing the the schema for them was actually just really kind of a, a huge pain, um, but it's more to your point. Like, um, it's really it's really powerful, but it's really just like, at what scale um, does it make sense for you? Right. Yeah, what I see is a little bit of history repeating here. I don't know if, if you guys are old enough to remember uh, web services, right? The the SOAP services, right? Um, by the way, this this comparison is utterly unfair, I think, to GraphQL because SOAP had a lot of problems with it. 
that had nothing to do with um, you know the, the choice to have these uh, schema definitions. Um, there was lots of reasons why I think I think it's fair to say SOAP failed or didn't get the type of adoption that it wanted to get, and people ended up going back to systems that were a lot more ad hoc, like REST systems that didn't have schemas or um, you know that were much more simple and straightforward um, because they found that in a lot of cases a lot of what the the SOAP infrastructure was doing for them was they just didn't really need. They wanted something bare bones and simple and straightforward. And I think there are there are applications out there that would really benefit from GraphQL because they have there were some really, really hard problems. They're they're doing a lot of dynamic data queries from client to server, or they have very, very complex schemas, and I think they'll benefit from GraphQL. Uh, but I'm sure there's applications out there for which, you know what, that's too much of a hammer. And so you should take a hard look at both technologies and see which one suits your use case. Cool. That was uh, useful. Uh, thank you. So Amy needs to jump out really soon, so we're going to go ahead and jump into tips and picks, and she can go first, and then, and then she can jump out. So go ahead, Amy. Uh, so I have two picks this week. Same one uh, as the one from last week. I was going to pick November. Uh, I think... Nashville is awesome, and it's good Node slash JavaScript conference, so that's my first pick. Second pick, again, is kind of like a selfish plug. So the company I work for, SparkPost, uh, the add-on is on Heroku. So if you need to send email through your application, I was going to plug that to check out SparkPost on Heroku. And that is it for me. Thank you. Um, so, Patrick, why don't we go with you next? Yeah, so um, I have two picks. One of them is open source. Open source is awesome. Like, yeah, we see more and more of the, the industry moving more towards it, and uh, larger companies like Netflix and Facebook and uh, Google getting more into it. But, and um, the other pick is uh, Angular Connect. Uh, my talk with uh, Jeff Welpley over here uh, on full stack Angular. Um, see that in the coming months. That's going to be awesome. And my my tip is to contribute to open source. Um, and yeah. Uh, Kent has a really good blog post he's going to talk about right now. <laughs> yeah, sweet. Uh, I guess with that kind of a segue, I'll go ahead and uh, and do mine. Um, so I let's see. Yeah. So I'm kind of into open source, and I'm I think that it's good for people to get into open source. There are many benefits. Um, so I wrote a uh, I, I'm the maintainer of a library called Angular Formly, and um, it's it's really cool because uh, like lots of ben people benefit from this. But uh, one time I decided I I could really simply implement something like it was just it was a really simple new feature, um, and I finished writing the test for it. I was about ready to implement, and then decided that I would actually just push the test as skipped so the build wouldn't break, and then let somebody else implement it and just fix the test basically. And I've done that a couple of times now. It's really really rewarding, and I lock down the issue and say nobody can. can can file a pull request unless you've never contributed to open source before, um, and so it's it's turned into this really awesome, rewarding like uh, experience. And so I have a blog post on on uh, basically what I just described called First Timers Only," um, and so I'll put that in the show notes. My uh, next pick is conferences. So I'm going to Midwest JS. I'm actually wearing their shirt today. It's a cow. Um, and uh, so Midwest JS was a lot of fun last year. It was their first year last year. Um, I, I spoke there. I'm speaking again this year, um, and we're doing. Uh, I'm also doing an ES6 or ES2015 training. I hate that. I'm going to call it ES6. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I'm doing a, a training there, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So Midwest JS, and then also React Rally. Uh, <coughs> Trader. <laughs> I was t actually tempted to pick React, um, but yeah, that's next episode. But uh, yeah, React Rally, it's going to be an awesome uh, conference. I'm really excited about it, and it's here in Utah where uh, tech is just booming, especially JavaScript, uh, so looking forward to that conference. Uh, Jeff, why don't uh, you go ahead, and we'll save Jeff for last. OK, uh, two quick picks. Uh, first is a uh, podcast, uh, Angular Air. Episode 25, uh, my favorite episode yet. Uh, check it out. Next uh, one is another podcast, uh, JavaScript Jabber, episode 168 with uh, Joffer. Uh, it was a great episode. I, I've heard Joffer talk a number of times about uh, Falcor, and he's always great, but uh, he got into ES6 and a lot of the future of JavaScript stuff. Amy was on that show, too. And uh, it, it was just really insightful. I, I enjoyed it a lot, so definitely check that out. 
Thanks. Uh, Jopper, what do you have for us? Um, so I, the moment nowadays I'm, I'm very excited about Redux, uh, which is a, a new approach, I think, to writing React applications. And um, I think it's one that, you know, it's, it's an exciting time. We're, we're basically, I think React is really reinventing the way that people think about building user interface applications. And we're starting to see the community actually take the lead there uh, be, and push React beyond, I think, where Facebook thought it could be. And uh, I think there's some really exciting ideas in, uh, in Redux. Um, I'd also like to pick GraphQL, which I think is a, a great piece of technology that people should absolutely check out and uh, and you know see if it's see if it fits you because I think there's some some really exciting ideas in GraphQL um, and uh, it's specified. It's got a great spec, uh, and I know the people behind it and they're they're awesome guys. Um, and let's see, last pick um, probably would be Immutable JS, another uh, great library from. Uh, from the uh, folks over there at Facebook, uh, which is a great way to put uh, immutable collections into JavaScript. So I'm, I'm just going to point this out. All three of those picks were related to React. <laughs> uh, <laughs> OK, maybe a slight faux pas. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm just kidding. We love React over here. Um, we also love Angular. We do? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, actually, I was. I was going to ask about how Redux um, and uh, Falcor work together. I don't know if we have maybe 60 seconds or less that you could describe whether those two are a good technology together. So uh, that's actually what we're figuring out right now. And in fact, that's what I think is the most exciting potential approach to integrating the two. I think Relay is Facebook's stab at how to integrate GraphQL. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's, that's innovative, but I think you know, we at Netflix aren't completely satisfied uh, on some of the teams with that approach. I think there's some downsides to Relay. I think it's still a very innovative technology. Um, I think there's actually more potential in the approach that Redux uses uh, and integrating Falcor with Redux. I think I'm, I'm very excited about that approach. We're going to try it out. I don't think we'll have something ready by the time we open source um, next week or the week after that, but we're definitely experimenting hard at the moment and thinking about how those two technologies will integrate. We think that's probably the sweet spot for integrating these two technologies. I'll just throw in there that uh, Patrick has been working on a Redux implementation in Angular, uh, Angular 2, so Angular 2, uh, yeah. you, should, you should throw in the link for that too, Patrick. Well, I yeah. also want to point out that Immutable JS, you, there's no reason you can't use that with Angular. In fact, I know uh, Victor on the Angular team, uh, a friend of mine, is, uh, has put together some examples of how you can use immutability with Angular 2 uh, you know, to profit greatly. Awesome. I was just trying to uh, put words in your mouth. <laughs> um, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, Falcor sounds like a very exciting technology, and, and we really appreciate your enthusiasm for uh, Falcor and many other things in, in the front end community. Um, so really quick, uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way? I would say probably Twitter. Um, you know, if, uh, if you could tweet out or you chat out my handle there, that would be fantastic. Um, that's, that's probably the best way to get in contact with me. And there's a Falcor.js Twitter handle, all one word, lowercase Falcor.js, F-A-L-C-O-R-J-S, uh, where if you want to talk, chat, check what's going on with Falcor and ask questions, you can hit me up there as well. Great. Okay, um, so I'm just going to wrap things up really quick. Just a reminder uh, from an announcement standpoint, um, we have an awesome up episode coming next week um, with uh, Gleb Bamatov and um, about performance and testing and all this awesome stuff. And then um, remember to catch us on Twitter and Google Plus to keep up with the stuff that's going on. And uh, yeah, that's it. So thanks everybody for coming on, especially Joffer. Thank you for uh, coming on as a guest. We appreciate uh, you jumping on. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. I had fun. Yeah, it's fun for us too. See ya. Catch you later, guys. <laughs>